All right, let's get after it. Hebrews chapter 11. If you have a Bible, if not, there should be one around you. Underneath the seat. Hebrews chapter 11 is where we'll be today. We're getting closer to the end of Hebrews. We've been here for just over six months now. Uh, it seems like a long time. Sometimes it doesn't seem like we're in it for that long. But Hebrews 11, we'll pick it up in verse 7. That's where we left off last week. If you've been walking with us. Today's a historic day of sorts. Um, and no, I'm not talking about the beginning of the first playoff season for the Houston Texans. Uh, that, is, that is the case. Uh, but obviously it's the, the 10th anniversary of 9-11, uh, the terrorist attacks on America. And so as I want to get started uh, this morning, I wanted to use today, like this day actually, it's literally the day, as almost a, a teaching moment here as we get started and, and go into Hebrews 11. Um, you'll notice certain things if you come to FCQ enough. Uh, you'll notice... We're real relaxed, we're real casual, we really enjoy each other, uh, we're real serious about the scriptures. Um, and then you'll notice that I don't mention much, if ever, really, holidays or national events or things like that. Uh, and I know for some, uh, that's, that's not the ideal. Uh, and, and that's because for that's, that's the, the reason I don't mention those things. So there's been holidays um, that have come and gone, and, and I mean, I didn't even say the name of the holiday or the national event or whatever it was. There's a reason for that kind of stuff. One of them is because I'm a little more concerned with other things on Sunday morning. I mean, I've got some other priorities, some other things I want to talk to you about. Um, the other is you've got to be careful, particularly in a church setting, of communicating who we're really concerned about. So there's not a flag in our sanctuary. There never will be. It's not because I'm not patriotic. It's not because I hate America, things like that. Um, but it's because theologically, at least for this hour, um, we're going to focus on one king. In his kingdom. And America, for better or for worse, falls way down the list uh, of priorities, at least for this hour. And so Brad, uh, a few weeks ago, preached on a text where Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to hate your mother and your father and your brother and sister, or you can't even come after me. And we, I mean, as who we are, we, we want to water that down as much as possible. Well, it means, court, next to our love for Jesus, it should mean it should look like we, we hate our families, things like that. Um, I think you can apply that as well to, to our, our politics, to our, our allegiances. So there's nothing, just like there's nothing wrong with enjoying your family, with protecting them and loving them and caring about them. There's nothing wrong with having a nation, a government, leaders, things like that. Um, but next to how we view who's really in charge, those things should, should kind of fall down the ladder a little bit. Um, so there are, I mean, there are churches today who are having 9-11 services. I'm not going to condemn that uh, wholeheartedly without being there and seeing what's happening. Um, but you're just not going to find that at FC Cubed. Um, and now we'll mention things uh, and we'll tie them in. But they're always tying in, again, to point towards him. To point toward what he is doing. Because while 9-11 was a historical event that still kind of shapes who we are today in a big way. I understand that. I understand we remember and we honor and we respect. We pay tribute to those who protect us, who serve us. I... I I'm fully there on board with all of you. But there was a bigger event a couple thousand years ago. And there's a, a bigger movement that was created from it. It has bigger effects today. Um, and I think it's worth our time on Sunday mornings. So I was going to, we sometimes we do a video after the countdown. And I had, I downloaded a 9-11 video to show you guys from a large church that I really respect. Um, and it was about five minutes long. Real great production because they're a really big church. And I watched the video. And it was a great video. But after five minutes... I mean, nothing had mention of God at all. So lots of good quotes and lots of moving pictures and slides and things like that. Um, but nothing about God. And, and so my thought is, that's a great video. I mean, it was very moving to me. 
but does it belong to church service? I don't, it's not going to be in our church service. Because um, we've got other things to think about. We've got other things to focus on in our time together. So are things like 9-11, America, politics, those things important? They are, they are, they are. We should be involved with them. But they're only as important as they point us to him. As they help us follow and worship and align ourselves with him and him alone. That's the politics of the scriptures. It's a theological politics that then filters through everything else that's happening. Okay, So 9-11 teaches us a lot of things. 9-11 teaches us that the world is a broken, broken, broken place. If we, if we had forgotten about it or if we were unaware, um, we were reminded. The world is a broken place, out of control in many aspects. And Hebrews has been saying all along, we're on our way to a time when that is not the case, right? We're on our way to a time when the world will not be broken. So Hebrews has been putting us on a timeline in history. And if you remember, it's done in a couple ways. One with the promised land. So we're after the exodus before we enter into the promised land. Another one is with the temple, the day of atonement, right? Jesus, our high priest, has gone into the Holy of Holies and we're outside the camp waiting for him to return. Not to deal with sin because he's presented the sacrifice, but to save us, to bring us into God's presence. And throughout Hebrews, our conversation partner for the last six months or so, has been walking, doing life with us. He's been telling us, look, there's a danger for you and I. There's a danger. And the danger is that we would somehow, through whatever means, get distracted from who the king is, what he's doing, and what that calls and demands of us. And so he's been talking about keeping our eyes on him, being focused on him, thinking deeper about who he is and what he's done. And then last week we jumped into what will be four weeks for us all together on faith, which is to Hebrews really the key for us to endure and to keep following him. And so we're in Hebrews 11, this really famous chapter with all these famous people where he talks about faith. Last week, if you remember, if you weren't here, it's online or will be soon. Uh, We saw that faith is a God-shaped trust. It's a reaction to who God is, who he's revealed himself to be. Uh, We saw that faith is future-oriented. It looks towards what is not yet. And we saw that it's well-traveled. And so we're going to build and kind of fill out all those things even more as we jump into Hebrews eleven seven, where we really start going down this list of people and what they did and all these historical men and women who've traveled down this road of faith for us. So let's look, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. Lots in here for us. Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah... Being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Nine, by faith he went to live in the land of promise. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, he who had promised. Therefore, from one man, him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven. And as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. 
If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus and gave directions concerning his bones. Okay, this list, this little passage here goes through a men of faith that we call the patriarchs, okay? And it runs from Genesis 6, which is where we meet Noah. Genesis 6, so just a few chapters after creation, Genesis 1, the fall, Genesis 3, all the way up to the end of Genesis. Joseph, his story finishes out Genesis 6 through 50, okay? And we have all these different characters listed off. Noah, Abraham, Sarah, his wife, Isaac, Abraham's son, Jacob, Isaac's son, Jacob would be named Israel, renamed after he wrestles with God. And then Israel has 12 sons, one of which is Joseph. Now, there's all these different stories, and they all had really unique, particular lives. But there are a few threads that pull them all together, and that will help give us some shape and some flavor to what faith is and does and works in our life. Okay. So the first thing you should notice as we're reading through here is this word promise. This word promise comes up in these verses five times. If you look at verse 9 twice here by faith he went to live in the land of promise living in tents with isaac and jacob heirs with him of the same promise verse 11 these all died in faith not having received the things promised verse 13 these that i'm sorry that was verse 13 uh verse 17 by faith abraham when he was tested offered up isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son with sarah she considered him who promised to be faithful five times. So this repetition of the word promise uh, gives us a hint to what um, one of the themes here is. The first thing we'll say about faith is faith is promise driven. Okay, it is a reaction to something that God has said and committed to. It is promise driven. So if you're reading the Genesis story, in Genesis one and two, he creates, and it's a good creation. It works the way it's supposed to work. In Genesis three. Human beings, the image bearers of God, rebel, and things really start to fracture at every basic level. Um, so Genesis 4, we have the first murder, Cain and Abel, which then leads down this spiral of violence. The world is becoming increasingly wicked. To Genesis 6, where we meet Noah, and we meet this idea that God regrets making man. And he kills everybody, except for Noah. And we've made it into like a children's story. So we tell it to our kids at night, and we're like, sweet dreams. But the story is God drowns everybody because he wants to start over. So the creator God then comes and makes a promise to Noah. And then he comes to Abraham in Genesis 12 and makes another promise. And then that promise is passed on to Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Faith is promise driven. These men of faith all received a promise and followed it. And they received the promise from the creator God, who we could say is also the covenant God. The creator God who is the covenant God. So we met this word covenant over the last few chapters as we've been talking about the new covenant that we're living in as Christians. A covenant is like a promise, um, but a little more formal. It's kind of an ancient contract, if you will, um, that had 
promises, commitments, stipulations. A covenant can be conditional. If you do this, I will do this. It can be unconditional. I'll do this no matter what you do. And we see here the most basic relationship between God and man is this. It's one of covenants. The first time we see that word covenant is in Genesis 6 with Noah. And the covenant, the promise God makes to Noah has a sign. Remember the sign is when it rains, a rainbow. Yeah. Abraham gets a covenant in Genesis 17. His covenant gets a sign of circumcision. The sign of the covenant. The sign of the new covenant, according to the New Testament, would be baptism. Baptism marks us out as in this promise, in this covenant. So you have this creator God who's also the covenant God. This is a theme that's all over the scriptures. Psalm 19, one of my favorite little poems, is split right in half if you go read Psalm 19. The first half starts with the real famous, the heavens declare the glory of God. Right? Real famous. Then it goes down on how awesome God must be because of everything we can see. The creator God. And then it flips right in the middle and says, yet he's given us a law that's perfect. He's revealed himself to us. He's put himself in covenant with us. The creator God is the covenant God. He creates and then he comes back to his creation, makes promises and says, hey, we're going to get out of this. I'm not going to abandon the world that I created, even though sin and death and evil and Satan have entered in and taken control. And so a life of faith is a life that believes his promises. And again, that leads, like we saw last week, to action and discontent and expectation to reward But it's a life that believes his promises. Now, a promise is one of the harder things to believe. It's easy to doubt a promise for a couple of reasons. One, because it's future. And then two, because by its very nature, a promise means you're not in control, right? So some of us are like this. I mean, if you're in a phrase, if you want it done right, do it yourself. The only way sometimes I know something's going to get done, at least the way I want it to get done, is what? I do it. A promise takes that completely out of the picture. Now, all of a sudden, for whatever I want to have happen, someone else has to do it. So Sarah, I mean, who, who kind of has a reputation for being quick to doubt and, and being quick to, to maybe laugh, says, by, say, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, verse 11, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Why did she believe the promise? Because of who God was. We talked about last week a little bit. Faith is not as much blind as sometimes it gets portrayed. Because at its heart, faith is always in a very particular God. The God who created everything. So even when maybe there's nothing in our circumstances, as with Sarah, that would lead us toward a hope for something future, we still have the revelation of who God is that would give our faith teeth and a ground to stand on and fuel and motivation behind it. Now, here's one of the biggest mistakes we can make whenever we read the Old Testament or read about the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is not just isolated stories about people and God. It's not case studies, okay? So the promises that were made to Noah and to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob aren't just promises. It's not just God promised him a sandwich. He believed in the God's sandwich. And so we look at that and we go, that's great. Let's believe what God promises us. There's something much deeper happening, which is God being on this mission, this mission of redemption. He's on this mission of rescue and recreation and salvation and redemption. And it starts all the way back in Genesis. The Bible is one story. Genesis with creation, ending in revelation with new creation. And so one of the biggest mistakes we can make is to read about Abraham getting a promise and go, that's great, we should believe in a promise. That is true, but it's more than that. 
Because what was the promise Abraham got in Genesis 12? The promise was, through you I will bless all peoples of the earth. Well, when Genesis 11 ended, what did we know about all the peoples of the earth? They were scattered and confused and sinful and wicked from the Tower of Babel. And God comes to Abram and says, I'm giving you a promise consisting of two things, land and descendants, a nation and land, and I will use you to go bless everybody. And God starts a plan. He starts a plan. God's on a mission of redemption that's continuing even to this day. And so he lists off these guys as kind of the, the trailblazers of that plan. We call them the, the patriarchs, or in a sense, the founding fathers, just like there's founding fathers of America, founding fathers of salvation of God's plan in the world. He starts it, and it's going until today. There's more happening here than just people who had a promise and who believed. It's people who had a promise and what God was doing that's continuing to happen today and will be fulfilled in the future. And we'll, we'll flesh this out here as we go. Now, look in verse 13. Noah had faith and built an ark. Abraham had faith, went to the land. Sarah had faith, finally got a child. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Wait, here's what he's saying here. All of these men, they did not receive the promise. They did not receive the promise. Some of them didn't receive the kind of temporary promise. None of them received the big promise, right? Which was God is rescuing. He's blessing all the peoples. He's removing sin and death from his creation. So let's start with Noah. If you know anything about the story of Noah, you know it doesn't end all that great. Noah survives the flood, right? He's saved by God. Uh, Genesis 9, right after the flood, here's what we know about Noah. He drank too much, he blacked out, he lost his clothes, and his son took advantage of him. That's the story. Right after the flood. First blackout in the Bible. Which tells us a few things. One, God's people have always had really messy pasts. The people he uses and loves and calls. Who he still uses and loves and calls. Still have these mistakes they make. Still have these things that they're not proud of. Remember that. So Noah makes a mistake. So the promise to Noah was, hey, we're going to get rid of all these sinful people. We're going to start over. And then, I mean, not too long after the flood is done, what? Noah looks in the mirror and goes, we didn't get rid of everybody. We're still here. I'm still here. Abraham gets a promise of land, people, and blessing the entire world. When he dies, he has two sons. Not enough to bless the world. And guess what? The only land he really owns is a grave. He manages to buy a grave toward the end of his life. And he dies. Sarah dies as well. The promise then goes to Isaac. Isaac dies without seeing it fulfilled. The promise then goes to Jacob, Isaac's son. Jacob, then renamed Israel, dies without seeing it fulfilled. The promise goes to his 12 sons, Joseph being one of them. Joseph dies without it being fulfilled. But the point of the scriptures is, hey, those weren't sad stories, right? I mean, those stories don't die with them hopeless and going, I guess it didn't work out. The point of the stories is they seem to still have expected an inheritance from God. It seems like they died, but they were still looking toward what he would call a city. In verse 10, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. They all died in faith, 13, not having received what was promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. 
They knew they were seeking a homeland. They had opportunity to go back to what they had. As it is, they desired a better country, a heavenly one. And it seems like they didn't think death was going to stop them from getting there. It seems like faith, we could say, is stronger than death, is larger than death, is more real than death is. This is a really powerful idea here. The Abraham story, the Noah story, the Isaac story, the Jacob story, those aren't sad stories. They don't die going, oh man, it really stinks to be them. No, they died looking forward to receiving what God had promised them. And they thought very clearly that death itself would not stop them. Look at verse 17 here. Uh, he, he tells this story of maybe the biggest story of faith in the scriptures. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So again, this is more. We preached on this, Genesis 22, a while back. This is more than just Abraham sacrificing his son. It is that, and that's intense. That's sad. That's, that's a moving story. But more than that, he's sacrificing the promise. God's come to him and said, the only way you can figure out how I'm going to do what I told you I would do, I want you to kill it. I mean, that's the heart of the story. Offer up Isaac. Then he considered, verse 19, Abraham, that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The story of the Isaac sacrifice, or near sacrifice, is really held up as the epitome of faith, where death itself does not cause Abraham to doubt. Do you see what's happening there? He says, the promise dying is a much smaller thing than the God who made the promise, and who will see it through. Now, I heard a joke this week I had to share with you. Uh, in Genesis 17, okay, Abraham got the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. Now, he was an old man at the time. If you're not aware, circumcision is a painful operation, but he's committed so he gets circumcised. Now, the joke is he comes back to home, right? Sarah, I mean, they have no idea what circumcision is. It's a new thing, probably a little weird and foreign to them. Comes home and Sarah's like, hey, what'd you do today, Abraham? He's like, well, actually, I had a little operation, so things are a little bit changed down here. thought you should know you're my wife. Uh, and Sarah's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're just cut. What are you doing? And she goes, why did you do that? And Abraham goes, well, God told me to. And she goes, God told you? Okay, so if God told you to kill Isaac, would you just go to a mountain and kill him? And Abraham's like, uh, <laughs> actually, speaking of which, it's <laughs> a few chapters later. Yeah, this is faith and throughout this this kind of faith there seems to be this resurrection hope it looks beyond their lifetime not even death itself will stop them from receiving the promises and there seems to be this idea of a resurrection resurrection is death being reversed or defeated it's not going to heaven and having your body be in the ground that's not what the word means it's not the tradition the history behind it that would be death winning in a sense that would just be god reacting to death Plan B, let me take their souls and we'll go to heaven. Resurrection happened to Jesus, where he was dead and now he's alive. And there seems to be this idea, even in this Abraham and Isaac story, that's not the final word. And in fact, we will walk into the city that God's preparing. We'll do it. So this is a really interesting idea, this idea of the city. That God is preparing a city that he's taking his people to, even if they die before it is made a reality. It's the first time we meet this idea in Hebrews. We'll see it again in Hebrews chapter 12 and chapter 13. The God's preparing a city. He's leading his people to the city. 
A city, he says here in verse 10, that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. A city in verse 16 that God has prepared for his people who have faith. What is the city? What's the city he's preparing for us? Again, some people are content to say it's one swift move after death, which is you go to heaven. You go into wherever God is and you leave your body behind. But the actual portrait that scriptures give us is much more full than that. It's much richer than that. Um, if you were to the end of Revelation, you would see this. There's a scene where all God's people are resurrected. Again, not resurrected. They were dead and now they're alive. Their bodies, their souls, they were dead. They're in the ground and now they're alive. And then there's a new heaven and a new earth that's created. They come together and they marry each other and they become one. And God dwells with man and man dwells with God forever. The picture of the scriptures is a new bodily life and a new heaven and a new earth. Where it's said in Revelation, we'll reign with him forever. It's much more rich and full than maybe just going to heaven so Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13, our resurrection will be a lot like Jesus's. His was the example for us. You can read it, the prototype, the firstborn, the first fruit. What happened to Jesus will happen to us. Jesus was dead and now he's alive. He's risen. One day we will be raised from the dead. And then heaven, earth, recreated, joined together. And we're in the city. The city that God is preparing. The city that apparently Abraham and Isaac and Joseph saw from afar. They greeted it. And they said, we'll be there soon. And they didn't die without faith. They died in faith. Saying, not even death will keep us out of the city. This is not a promise that we don't get to see fulfilled. We'll just have to wait for it. It's bigger. It's mightier. It's stronger. It's more real than death itself, it seems. So God prepares the city for those who have faith, for those who belong to him. Look in verse 7 again. We're talking about Noah. By faith, verse 7, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the rest of the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Okay, what it seems to be saying here is faith is the badge of God's people. Faith is the uniform that God's people wear. It's the outfit that they have. It's the walk that they have that you recognize them by. This God-shaped trust. This promise-driven action in life. This hope for the future. That seems to be what stands out as God's people versus those who aren't God's people. So the point here is you have this story of the flood. There's a flood coming. Build an ark, Noah. And, and according to tradition, Noah preached to the rest of the world. Hey, there's a flood coming. You need to repent. You need to get ready for it. Um, and they all mocked him. They mocked him and said, I mean, you're kind of, you're losing it, Noah. He's building an ark way too big for his family, uh, way far away from the ocean. Uh, if that's happening today, we stop talking to that person, right? You go pray for them, and you just kind of don't let your kids wander over there, okay? You just leave them alone. That's what's happening. He says here, what happened in that moment was all of the world went to one side of the room, and Noah and his family went to the other. And Noah and his family were declared righteous, and the others were condemned. Now, this word righteous comes from the law court, from the metaphor of the, the law court. That's the scenario, that's the scene that it comes from. The idea would be, again, in the Hebrew world, there's no jury really. There's a judge and there's a defendant. And the, the judge lays down a verdict, one of two ways, right? Not guilty or guilty. 
And now the verdict doesn't maybe change the past. The verdict simply says, in my eyes, this is how you are seen. And if I have authority now in the entire world. And so the scriptures over and over again are going to say, those who have faith are counted righteous. Paul would say it like this, they're justified. That's actually the same word in Greek. Justification, righteousness. The exact same word in the Greek. Our Bibles, eh, they don't do a great job letting us know that. The same thing. So he says, Noah was counted as righteous, had this status. It's this outward sign of right standing before God. That you want to know who God's people are. Who is it that follows him, that obeys him, that trusts him, no matter what the circumstances are? Who is it that sees the city, even though it's not here, and says, I'm on my way, and nothing will stop me? Well, it's those who have faith. It's those who have faith. So Paul does the exact same thing. He, he calls it justification by faith. Again, same word. And Paul quotes from Habakkuk, which we quoted from at the end of chapter 10. The righteous shall live by faith. And then Paul moves to one of the patriarchs. And he says, now Abraham was counted righteous according to his faith. Hebrews does the exact same thing here. It goes from Habakkuk to a patriarch. But it ends at a different patriarch. You see that? Noah was counted as righteous. At that moment, the entire world was split up. And there was God's people. And there were those who were not God's people. Faith is the badge of who belongs to God. And that brings us to what might be the one of the, the harder verses for me to understand. Verse 16 here. As it is. They desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God because he has prepared such a city for them. The idea, we met this a little bit in, earlier in Hebrews where Jesus, um, if we obey and follow, isn't ashamed to call us his brothers. And I think we stopped there and just said, well, maybe that, that's just a little too much for us to grasp. There would ever be a point where Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. He says, come on, he's on my team. And those who have faith, apparently God's reaction to that is in a sense pride. He's not ashamed for them to associate themselves with him. He proudly, it seems, declares his covenant with those who have faith, with faith people. This is covenant language. If you remember, the heart of the new covenant is this one phrase. I will be their God, and they will be my people. He says, when they say, that's my God, God reacts with, yep, those are my people. And he's almost just bragging about it. You want to see my people? You want to see what happens when people see me and worship me for who I am? Look at those people. Which is insane. Noah, again, what happens after the flood? He, like, steps into Jersey Shore for a chapter, right? <laughs> Abraham messes up over and over again. Isaac and Jacob, Joseph, throughout the scriptures, men full of errors, full of mistakes. But God looks at Noah and goes, he's mine. I'm not ashamed of that. Come here, he's mine. Everybody look there. And God looks at you and me with our mistakes. When we're in Genesis 9, when we're falling and doubting, and he goes, I'm not ashamed. That's, my, that's mine. They're part of my family. They're part of my people. And what's happening? 
What's happening is they have faith. What's happening is they've received a vision, a revelation of who God is, and they're responding to it. They're responding to it with trust and hope and expectation and obedience. And so again, we can't define faith into this intellectual exercise where we simply know and can repeat a sentence. And we know what the words themselves mean. Because that's not how faith worked for these people. Faith for these men of the promise worked itself out in a life that distinguished them from others. A life that saw the city, believed in the city, and went towards the city at all costs. Despite what people around them said, despite what it meant for them in their lifetimes, despite how much or how little they saw happen in their lifetimes. They had faith, and they followed. And God says, I'm not ashamed. When they're sitting around, when they're talking to other people, and they say, that's my God. God doesn't go, no, 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 no. Eh, sometimes, no. Right? Because there are people in the world that I don't want to be associated with. Don't let my name in there with those people, right? And I, I, I mean, I got, my gut reaction is that has to be God when I go, I follow Jesus. He has to be out there going, oh, can you say sometimes? Because there's just, <laughs> can we qualify that a bit? And the scripture going, he's not ashamed. For those who would have faith, for those who would truly believe and follow, his heart swells with pride and he wants to tell the world. Look at, look at my people. Look at them go. Yeah, he fell in Genesis 9. Yeah, he made some mistakes. But look at their life. It's a life of faith. And they're mine. I am their God, and they are my people. So let's bring this out of Genesis and into Sugarland, the greater Houston area. Hebrews, again, wants to make us really aware of where we are in the timeline of history. Um, we're on our way to the city, but the city's not here yet. We're not in the city and at times, if we're honest, it looks around us like the city is not coming, right? It looks like the city is not coming and will never come. It looks like if anything, we're getting further and further and further away from the city. And if we're honest, there are all these powers and forces and temptations around us that want to pull us off the track. And Hebrews to his congregation and as well to you and I says this, stay on the track Use faith, trust, believe, obey, and follow. And then all will know who you are. You'll know where you stand before God. And you'll know he's proud of you. You're in his covenant. So in Sugarland, Texas, 2011, Greater Houston area, by faith, maybe it could be said, God's people do not fall into the trap of materialism. They were defined by stuff and things. By faith, they abandoned that whole worldview. By faith, God's people living in one of the wealthiest places at one of the wealthiest times of all history do not hold on to it. By faith, they give it away and say there's something more important. By faith, God's people full, surrounded by a world that follows their own desires, their own plans. By faith, God's people in Sugarland, Texas, they abandon sin. They embrace holiness. By faith in a world that would cause us to split apart and to have relationships that fracture and break and dissolve, by faith, a group of people come together at least once a week can worship and sing and pray and laugh and fellowship. 
By faith, there's a people who worship one king and one kingdom. By faith, there's a people who understand what their purpose is in the world, to be a blessing in their homes and their workplaces. By faith, there was a, a group of people in 2011, some points small maybe, some points larger. And God was not ashamed to be called their God. When they said, that's, that's who our God is, he responds with, and those are my people. Why? Because they, they had faith. They followed, they believed, they trusted, and they obeyed. And they were on their way to the city. A city that is, despite the evidence sometimes, on its way. And a city that you and I are called to walk towards by faith. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you uh, that you've not left us in our sin. That you've not left us in our rebellion. Um, but after creating, you then came and promised you came and rescued. Father, we, we know that we are weak, prone to fall. We'll sing in just a minute. We're, we're prone to wonder. We feel it. And so we pray for your strength and your guidance, your courage. Father, we, we pray that we would be distinguished among all peoples as those who, despite what the evidence looks like, despite what the rest of the world believes and does and thinks, those who follow you. We are those who worship you. We are those who obey you. We are those who love each other in the world around us. Father, help us to wrap our minds around mysteries such as the cross, such as your love for us, our relationship with you, and help us to endure, follow. We need you. Once in your son's name we pray. Amen. That's the part in our service.